Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that our listeners can join us. Uh, Lachlan and Luke are not able to join us tonight, so I'm joined by Ken. Hello, Ken. G'day. Good to be here. I missed last week, so I feel like I'm getting an extra dose this week. Yeah, that's good. And I have an ulcer on the side of my tongue, so I'm expecting you to do a lot of talking, Ken. Oh, great. Well, that, that, I should get one by the time I'm finished. <laughs> last, um, last week, we looked at the story of Cain and sort of got sidetracked a bit on looking at the things which are not in this story. And it turned out to be a really fruitful sort of avenue. So one of the things that's not there, Cain, is any sort of remorse shown by Cain. Mm. He objects to his punishment, but who wouldn't? Um, he then proceeds to ignore his punishment, but he, he doesn't really show any repentance. And this this led me on a rabbit hole. I, I went looking through the Bible to see if I could find the first person who not just admitted wrongdoing to someone else, but admitted that they had wronged God. Because we retrospectively read God's plan of salvation into the into the early chapters of Genesis, um, but it's not there in the text. And the the lesson last week uh, commented. Um, on the finer points of what sacrifices can and cannot um, help in the process of salvation. It seems the shedding of blood is important and seems to suggest that Cain should have brought an animal, not just vegetables. But all of that's reading stuff into the text which isn't there. It doesn't even say it's a sin offering. They don't even acknowledge that they need forgiveness of sins. They don't seem to regard their separation from God as a problem that needs to be solved, at least as a problem for which the solution will involve any agency on their part. So I went looking through the Bible to try and find the first person who said, uh, I have sinned against God. Well, that's an interesting inquiry to undertake. Um, Two observations before you go there. They're sort of the flip side of each other. Uh, One is that one of my pet peeves is reading things into the text uh, that aren't there. And we do that with the uh, uh, the nativity. Um, we often read things in there about the wise men or about the animals that were in the uh, uh, the manger. And indeed, we often perhaps misinterpret even what a manger is. But um, uh, so that's one of the one of the things. The opposite thing is, uh, I do think it's appropriate to take a broad view of scripture and to look uh, for the for the broad themes that come out. Um, uh, so they, those two principles sometimes mm. conflict. Um, uh, but that was... So that's my first response to the idea of, of things that aren't in the story. We do that, of course, with the story of Noah and the flood as well. Yeah, which we're coming to uh, in today's discussion. Uh, but but the first one, the first one, Cam, the first one I thought, I mean, comes to my mind uh, quite a long way down the track. Um, is King David, um, you know, against you and against you only have yeah. I sinned. Yeah. And you would have to say that by that point, repentance and acknowledging wrongdoing, I don't know, is it part of the mechanism of salvation or at least is welcomed by God or is perhaps expected of his people? I'm not sure all of those are questions we could discuss for many podcast episodes. Um, I did find someone before David, and, and it, it's notable, it, Although, although repentance and the admission of guilt is definitely part of the broad brushstroke of Scripture, it surprised me how long it takes to emerge. And I don't think that the person I found is going to help us necessarily resolve this. 
but given that the given that its absence is ubiquitous no one in the book of genesis repents to god ever in the whole book so its its absence must signify something indeed adam and eve blame god they don't repent yeah. uh, in in at least they don't confess and accept their wrongdoing no explicitly jacob comes close he says in his prayer when he's waiting to meet esau a god i'm not worthy to receive all the good gifts you've given me i left here with nothing and now i'm returning with lots of animals and i'm not worthy to have this that's close it's still not confession it's in a very general sense um that's not the same as saying god right now in doing this i have done wrong and I want to repent repent of it. So that was a first sort of inkling. Again, at the end of Book of Joseph, at the end of um, the story of Joseph, uh, we half thought last week that maybe Joseph's brothers might show a good model for repentance, but they don't apologize to Joseph at that first meeting where he reveals himself. And after his, after the dad dies, after Jacob dies, they cook up a story that's not even true. They say... Oh, when our dad was still alive, he said um, to tell you a message not to be too harsh on us. Um, <laughs> that is a long way away from we've done wrong and we deserve punishment. And in any event, it's not uh, directed to God. Uh, yeah. It's it's directed to Joseph, yeah. uh, the person who was wronged. Uh, but it's a different type of confession yeah. to that which David um, engaged in, recognising that his wrong in affected others but yeah. was principally a wrong against god or at least also a wrong against god well this the person i'm thinking of ken ad- admits that their sin has affected other people they um admit that they've sinned against god and people they ask specifically for forgiveness and in this moment they repent from what they've done and it's a character we've talked about a fair bit on the podcast oh i don't i don't i'm thinking is it the king of nineveh Earlier, um, earlier, but you're on the you're on the right right track. Uh, so, so it's not an Israelite, I it's reckon. It's not an Israelite. Um, whew. Uh, is it? Is it? Um, uh, Rahab. Um, uh, earlier than Rahab. Earlier than Rahab. Oh. Uh, you you definitely know that this person expresses remorse, but he, he, almost certainly they will not come to your mind. Well, you're right. They're not coming to my Good. mind. Okay. Exodus, <laughs> turn to Exodus 10 and verse 16. Okay, I'm going there. Uh, <laughs> oh, isn't that wonderful? Uh, <laughs> Exodus 10 and verse 16 for our listeners says, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. That was, of course, uh, the uh, plague of the locusts. Um, uh, So the second, the third last plague. I might have missed something. Maybe our listeners can inform me. But that is the first time I could find in the Bible. I I didn't read it in detail, but I I went over every story and every bit of dialogue and, and went to the likely points. And that was the first time I could find of someone who said, I've done something wrong to God. Mm. Wow, that's, there's all sorts of things that arise from that, aren't there? 
Um, so a recognition of sin and a request for forgiveness is not inconsistent with a hard heart. Oh, uh, and that's... Uh, and neither is it inevitable that the recognition of sin and a request for forgiveness will lead to change. yeah. That's rather disturbing. It's quite disturbing. It's quite disturbing. Of course, there's another candidate who's Job, but Job is not dated. We don't know when the story comes. And Job does say, God, I've done wrong. I've I've talked about things I don't understand. Mm. Mm. Yes yes and no. Um, Because Job recognises the greatness of God, but he doesn't say, I have done the wrong thing. He simply says, I haven't, I've spoken about things I didn't know. Um, He doesn't say what I said was wrong. Um, And he doesn't say, I have sinned and against you only have I sinned. Mm. Indeed, the whole story is premised on the basis that he was upright. There's a um, interesting part in the psalm that you quoted just then and when that's the psalm i think it's 51 when uh david writes after uh sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband uh he says in there god if you cleanse me i'll be clean and it seems to suggest a little bit what you were saying a bit before about pharaoh he says i've got good intentions but honestly uh, that's insufficient Mm. I'm, i'm i'm such a flawed instrument that uh my good intentions don't count for a lot. It's. I wonder about Pharaoh as well, um, and I don't want to lose the potential depths of the point that recognition of sin and a request for forgiveness might not be enough um, uh, and might not lead to change and might not be inconsistent with a hard heart. Um, but I... And they might live together in this way, at least... Uh, that is, uh, these consequences are terrible and overwhelming. Mm. I want to get rid of them. I will say the right thing uh, to achieve the result that I want without any change of heart. There, there is suggest. I mean, the story in that that verse in context seems to suggest that Pharaoh is not very sorry for what he's done, and and it's the same with Cain. Um, Cain, uh, God says to Cain, "Look, I'm not going to accept your sacrifice. Your sin is waiting at the door for you. You're on the edge of a of a moral catastrophe, and um, show some interest in living a good life. Show that you at least care about it, and then I'll accept your sacrifice. You can't buy me. God say, God's." I think the message of Cain is not that you should bring a goat and not vegetables. I think the message is that you can't bribe God mm. and that and that there's nothing you can bring that will placate him if if you're you can't sort of buy his favor. He's not a corrupt politician now that's a really interesting comment um, and we see that borne out in many of the prophets in the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, where the theme is, I'm not interested in your sacrifices. Yep. Uh, what I'm interested in uh, is your change of heart. Mm. Um, but perhaps there's another element to that. And we often say, okay, well, 
we don't buy God off with our sacrifices. We buy God off with our changed heart. But yeah. perhaps the or point is repentance. not that we buy God off at all, uh, that we bribe him at all, but that he yeah. is interested in our well-being and our well-being will be affected by a change of heart. Hmm. Even then, um, he's affected in our well-being, and if he is not involved in the process in some way, there's a very small chance of us producing a changed heart. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, certainly, certainly, the Genesis to date says two things, which are sort of at odds with conventional Christian Adventist theology. One of them is God's not very sovereign over His creation; He hasn't recommended anything to anyone yet that they've actually done um he tells them not to eat the fruit they eat the fruit he sends them from the garden he tells cain to shape up his ways cain doesn't shape up his ways ways cain kills his brother god says well you're going to be a wanderer all the rest of your life and cain says no i'm not i'm building a city and he just does so um it's it, it seems that the sort of world that in which god is sovereign in the sense that we usually mean it um, it seems that we're not living in that sort of world. Mm. Where uh, where everything is part of God's plan down to the detail, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. That, and that he is super superintending it all. I, I went to the funeral of the wife of a lawyer I spent a lot of time um, working with and against. Um on Friday last week and the, they played at the funeral a Nick Cave song uh, Into My Arms uh, in which one of the earliest lines is I, I don't believe in an interventionist God yeah. um, and uh, in a sense um, you see that in Genesis um at least not interventionist in the sense that he seeks to control the outcome of events. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the expense of respecting the autonomy of his creation generally and people in particular. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are two contrary stories, Locke, I think, mentioned either last week or the week before, that Genesis does show a pattern of God's involvement and that he is striving at all times to... Uh, meet the needs of, be merciful to, to instruct, to help the characters in the story. And that mm. when you look at the genealogies, there's an order and a structure to it. Every seventh person, I think, in the genealogy is significant in some way. And th- there's a suggestion that in the midst of this chaos that's playing out, God is actually involved. Um, but the manner in which he's involved seems to be more complex than than I hear f- sitting in a in a church pew most weeks. Um that's that's one point at which Genesis seems to be a little at odds with with where we'd normally go. Um, the other point is that um, we have a part to play in participating in, in our salvation. Now, I think that I think that um, I think that people's understanding of of God, God wants us to be autonomous people. He wants us to be involved not only in our own salvation but in our own health and in the production of our own food and in the administering of our own justice as we find at the end of the flood. God wants us to be involved in, in many ways. It's not surprising that he wants us to be sort of willing participants in the in our re in our recreation. 
Um, so I think that that's a very strong element, valid element that emerges in the Bible, but it's just not here very much. Mm. God, that people do the wrong thing and God just says, all right, well, I'll just be merciful on this one. I'll fill the gap. I'll give you the clothes. Um, yeah. Well, even before that, well, all right, I said you would die uh, yeah. today. I'm not actually going to do that. Yeah. Um, and then we come to the flood and we see the same things. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we might we might jump into the flood then, Ken. I'd encourage listeners to, to write in if they can. The address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com with other candidates for um, repentance in the Old Testament. Because I think it's an interesting sort of avenue of thought. I stopped when I got to Pharaoh because I was so excited that the first, the first recorded case of <laughs> repentance uh, against God was was such a troubling one. I thought that's going to be food for a lot of thought and interesting uh, discussion. Yeah, that's uh, I, I loved it. Um, and and in particular, uh, our listeners to focus on not just confession of a wrongdoing to the person the human being wronged, yeah. but a recognition of uh, of wronging God. Um, yeah. And it, the, yeah. When's the first time that people say, I'm in a state that needs salvation? This is, this is, I think, what's emerging, at least in the discussion we've had so far, is that when we talk about the plan of salvation, that could mean two things. That could mean God's intent to save. I plan, what do you plan to do on the weekend? Well, I plan to do this. So God's plan of salvation is, it's his intention to save us. Um, the plan of salvation is often used in an alternate sense, which is like the recipe or the algorithm. Mm. Mm. What are the ingredients and in which order do you put them in and mix them to make sure you get salvation? And mm. I think that mindset is challenged by what we've read in Genesis so far, because the plan of salvation is not there in terms of the ingredients we regard as reasonably essential, uh, repentance being one of them, Um, confession of sins, um, asking of God to make us a new person, aligning our will with him, um, belonging to a community. There's, There's lots of things that we, even if we don't maintain they're essential for salvation, we think they're highly recommended. Um... They're part of the plan of God's plan for us to be saved, anyway, and and uh, I think that that view emerges. I don't. I don't think I don't have any issue with those points. I think they're really important points, but they emerge sort of gradually, and it's just really interesting, at sort of how sparse the theology is in these stories. Hmm. It's interesting too because uh, I may have missed something in the story of Noah, but. It seems to me if one says salvation by works is not, uh, if you use that terminology, uh, is, is a wrong theology. Um, if you read the story of Noah, um, Noah 6 and verse 9 and 10, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And verse 22 of chapter 6 Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Uh, so that seems to be an important part of the recipe. Yeah, I'm beginning to suspect that there isn't a recipe, Ken. Um, mm. I don't think um, Cain thought there was a recipe. He thought you could just bring the right sacrifice. And in this story, um, 
sorry, just to be clear, you think that Cain thought there was a recipe and that was the problem? That was the problem. Cain thought, I'll just mm. bring a sacrifice and then, mm. then I'll be fine. Um, mm. And uh, God wants us, not our things. Um, God wants us to want him. Um, mm. I think, in other words, I think that this is a relationship thing and in any relationship there's not a recipe necessarily. There, there are general principles that will ensure a happy marriage or um, effective parenting or whatever. Um, the general principles at the level of the particulars become quite fuzzy and have different emphasis is needed at different times and mm. it's just more complicated. Indeed, the principles will often uh, point in different directions yeah. in the very same, in, in, in a given circumstance. Yeah, in this in this case, though, Ken, um, Noah is uh, seeking salvation from the flood. He's not seeking salvation in a spiritual, eternal sense. Mm. Mm. And none of these characters are. Well, and I think that's, that's true. I think it's true of me. Uh, it's true of my experience. Um, generally, what I want from God, uh, well, again, and it depends what you mean by salvation. Often we use it as, well, I'll go to heaven when I die. That's what we think salvation means. I suspect it's something much broader than that. Uh, and Jesus came to pronounce the availability of the kingdom here and now. But... Um, uh, Mostly what we want from God is to fix things up for us here, now. Mm. Um, and what we mean by fix things up for us here and now uh, is to keep us free from pain, to keep us safe, and to keep us comfortable, uh, not uh, overwhelmed with uh, wealth, but uh, enough to be comfortable. That's what we want. And, you know, we don't have to be uh, uh, ecstatic at all times, uh, but we want a base level of happiness that will uh, see us through today and uh, hang over a little into tomorrow. Mm. And, and, and that's what I think often, certainly, I, if I look at my own life, I think, well, when I'm asking what what measured by what I ask God for, um, even when I'm praying for other people, particularly those close to me, uh, I'm often praying for their well-being because, well, that eases the burden of my worry. Um. <laughs> One of the other dimensions to this, Ken, is that God seems to be very uh, approving of our concern for other people's physical well-being. Mm. So, and in fact, more so than our spiritual eternal salvation. In Isaiah, and we talked about this last week, but it went, and when the people come to Isaiah and say, why isn't God listening to us? We're sacrificing the right sacrifices. We're going to church. We're tithing. We're doing all the spiritual things. He says, yeah, but you're not looking after people. Mm. So we've noticed, we've noticed that it takes a long time in the Bible for people to say to God, actually, I've done, I've done wrong to you. Mm. But maybe, maybe the reason that the Bible emphasizes wrong to each other is because what we're seeing here in Genesis is the theology I said sparse before. Um, it's not entirely featureless. There are some strong features. One of them is God wants us to treat each other well. Yes. One of them is that he is always dispensing grace. Yes. And if you were to take those two as sort of the two basic foundations for theology, it's probably not a bad place to start. 
It's maybe why the Bible starts in that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can um, go on. I was going to say we've got we're up to twenty six minutes on our recording. Um, I think we haven't got into the flood in any detail yet. I, I propose that we we perhaps not read it in full detail. We've talked about it a fair bit, but uh, I think this is a fruitful avenue of inquiry. Let's let's focus perhaps less on the things which are in this story and the things which are notable by their absence. Mm. So I'm going to uh, start off. One of the things that's really notable by its absence is clarity over exactly what brought the flood on. The lesson has a quote, which you read to me before we started recording about um, uh, sins of decadence and... and, um, and It's a quote uh, from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, The sins that called for vengeance upon the antediluvian world exist today. The fear of God is banished from the hearts of men and his law is treated with indifference and contempt. The intense worldliness of that generation is equaled by that of the generation now living. God did not condemn the antediluvians for eating and drinking. Their sin consisted in taking these gifts without gratitude to the giver and debasing themselves by indulging appetite without restraint. Okay, well, let me read what it says in uh, Genesis 6. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. That's it. And it's... it's a, it's notable only for the fact that no one is exactly sure exactly what it means. Mm. Uh, it has been proposed that this is uh, fallen angels into marrying with men or spirits, or um, perhaps it refers to descendants of Cain. But you know, there's the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, you would think, you would think maybe, you would think that if if this world is just about formulas and do this and don't do that. That articulating with more clarity what it was that they did that brought on the flood might be important. Um, uh, there's a bit of an expansion further on. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You say there's a bit of an expansion, but really it's it's there's no more detail about the nature of the conduct. Mm. Um, it's simply the inclination mm. about which... Wow, there's all sorts of complicated psychology there, um, and it's uh, it's not just psychology. There's all sorts of, um, I mean, how do I control my inclinations? Um, uh, in a sense, I have little control over my inclinations, and yet, on the other hand, my inclinations are often the result of a combination previous choices, of yeah. previous choices that I've made. So yet previous choices that I've made without understanding fully, at least the potential consequences that they might have yeah. for my um, inclination. Yeah. No one chooses to become an addict, mm. but, but um, they do make choices that result in an inclination mm. that's sort of inescapable. Mm. Uh Christ, of course, centers on inclination, though. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says the act of murdering is not the part that is the essential problem. Mm. It is the anger. Mm. And two things about that. First, uh, that seems to me to be what Paul was talking about when he said, yeah, well, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do are the things that I do. He was talking about a problem mm. of inclination. Um, uh, and the second thing is, uh, the solution to that problem was not the exercise of stronger will 
or anything of that nature. It was mm. uh, intervention. It was Christ. Mm. Um, uh, now that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do and that we just sit back and do nothing, uh, but it does mean that it's the work of God, and that our role is to cooperate with the work of God in our lives. Hmm. Hmm. Is there anything else, Ken, you can see in this verse in chapter 6 that that would be there if it were written by Paul, a modern, <laughs> uh, Paul the Apostle Paul or a modern Seventh-day Adventist? Um, Cam, it's not jumping to mind, but I suspect you might have something. Well, there's the one about Noah preaching, which is referred obliquely in the New Testament somewhere that Noah was a preacher and that okay. he's picked up in Ellen White. But he's mm. very absent here. The people who, the people do not repent, mm. as the water is rising around their knees and thumping mm. on the outside of the boat, asking to come in. Uh, Noah does not preach. Mm. He doesn't give them the opportunity. In fact, God explains pretty clearly who is allowed on this boat, and says in verse eighteen of chapter six, "I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark." Um, yeah. There's very little. Uh, and indeed, it seems that God's intent was uh, to destroy the world, except for Noah. Um, mm. Yeah. Anything else, Cam, that's notably I'm absent? Through, I'm looking through chapter 6. Uh, the middle part, I mean, we've commented before at length that the story centres around the, the first, of verse, first verse of chapter 8, um, that God remembered Noah. And that there's a chiastic structure. There's a, the story builds up to that point and falls away from that point, and it's, mm. it's the climax. So the story is not essentially one of salvation. It's one of destruction and then recreation. It's not a story of God destroying the world. In fact, it's a story of him recreating the mm. world. Mm. Um, so... Uh, I'll tell you one thing that's not in there. Mm. Uh, I think... Uh, let me just reflect on this. Um the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, it's not there. And um, Noah offers a thanksgiving offering. There's no repentance on his part, but of course there's nothing for him to repent of because he is a righteous man, blameless among the people and does everything that God tells him to do. He's, he's singular and masculine righteous. You alone are righteous. So mm. the, the inference is that his wife and kids weren't. Mm. Um, but they were allowed on the boat anyway, and in that in that sense, Noah becomes a type of of Christ. His children definitely need to ask for repentance. At least one of them does, and um, he doesn't. So at the end of chapter nine, mm. it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, is it Jesus who said, uh, you know, uh, oh, maybe it's not. Anyway, there's a reference in the New Testament to. Uh, out of the same mouth flow blessings and mm. curses, or you can't mm. have blessings and curses come out of the same mouth. Mm. I think that's the that's the thought that's portrayed. And yet here we have Noah in verse twenty five, cursed be Canaan, and in verse twenty six, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's. I, I'd like to find uh, for our listener to send in something from Genesis where anyone sacrifices anything for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. Uh, yeah, it's just just very interesting. Mm. Um, I don't know where that leaves us. I don't think it's worth going on into no. Tower of Babel, because I suspect that's next week. 
Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I think we need to look for a, a way to wrap up. Um, mm. That's what I think, and I'm not well, sure here's, exactly Well, here's one way. Yeah, this was speculated. Uh, I can't remember whether it's during the recording or not. Um, but we speculated last week that uh, perhaps God is the first person who repents, Ken. What are your thoughts on that? And I'm thinking... <laughs> I'm thinking... Uh, You're thinking of Genesis chapter 6, in fact. Oh, that's not what we thought of, Ken. <laughs> uh, we thought of Genesis chapter 9. Yeah, but, but he said... He, um, the Lord was grieved that he, had ma- what, that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Uh, uh, but I think it, that's, that's the NIV. But I think if you go to uh, perhaps even the KJV or... What's what have I got here? Um, the Lord repented of uh, his creation. I think uh, we might see. Uh, and the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind mm. on the earth. Is the New Revised Standard Version, and I and I think and that word sorry carries with it the sort of uh, a similar yeah. meaning to so, repentance. So I think the can... KJV might say repent. In that moment, did God think he had done wrong to create the world? That's not the same as being sorry or repenting of an action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which he, in in the same way that um, when we see the consequences of something that we've done and the consequences are turning out to be unexpectedly bad, uh, that is how we measure that we've done the wrong thing. uh, yeah, sort of at utilitarian least utilitarian view of ethics. Yeah, uh, yeah. but 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 it's a proper and real yeah approach, if albeit an incomplete one. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so perhaps it is that God uh, is repenting of that, and and that's a very that that raises another very interesting discussion, um, uh, which one can go back to uh, the events in Genesis chapter 3 and see this is where God uh, says um, in verse 20, chapter 3 and verse 22 and the Lord God said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil what I'd like to know is in what sense did God know good and evil before the mm-hmm. fall um, yeah. because it is the fall that makes people, human beings like God, in that they know good and evil. In what way is it that God knew good and evil before they fell so that when they fell, they became like him? Yeah. So, I mean, tying that to the flood, uh, one way we know evil as humans is to do something with good intentions and then to realise afterwards, oh, that had an awful, Mm. that was just awful. Um, that's as sort of a, an innocent, as it were, knowledge of evil. And that seems to be the sentiment God's expressing here in Genesis 6. He says, ah, oh, look, that was not how I wanted that to go. Um, I was kind of hoping that would go in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, the other aspect of that is that God is also able to take things that were intended for evil and Ooh. to make them good. Yeah. And and the place we thought of where God repents last week was in Genesis 9, where God says, you know, I'm not going to do that again. Mm. And 
we've it said at the outset that God's heart was he, he experienced pain. Mm. God was God was hurting mm. when he looked at the world. And at the end of the flood he says, Do you know what, I'm just gonna wear that hurt. Mm. And look, we're recording this on the uh, uh, Good Friday uh, mm. of Easter. And I was reflecting with Wendy this afternoon about the struggles that I have with uh, some of our traditional articulation of the meaning of Easter and the cross. Um, but the one that sits, I think, most comfortably with me, and it remains a great mystery, um, and it's not one that provides any real detailed explanation. Um, it doesn't have uh, great, uh, or it doesn't have nice, clear um, uh, ideas about uh, who does what for what reason and why it's necessary and what price is being paid uh, and to whom. Um, and, yeah. and, and there are all sorts of questions that, that arise around it. But it does seem to me that there is something about the cross in which God is bearing the responsibility and accepting the consequences even for himself of the creation that he made which turned out to be flawed and yet of such infinite value uh, that he was prepared to be permanently changed uh, simply to make sure that he continued a loving relationship uh, with the human beings and indeed his whole creation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we've opened more questions then we've answered Ken, but we will uh, leave it there. And um, I mean, the the challenge at the very minimum, we have to accept that uh, God really cares about how we treat each other. Mm. That how we treat each other is a thing of huge significance. I mean, that's evident in the flood story. It's evident in the episode after the flood. It's evident in the stories in Genesis so far. And the other, that God is merciful, and this very vague picture at this stage that God wants to, you know, restore relationship between us and him and that God is willing to pay a price and that uh, a repentant, contrite spirit is is the best way to live is something which we've no remarked on this absence but it certainly comes into focus else, elsewhere in Scripture. And we see perhaps just a few vague beginnings in this text. Mm. Uh, listeners, uh if we're on the wrong track, please let us know at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And if we're on the right track, you can send an encouraging note. And uh, if you believe this to be a useful podcast, you can share it with all your friends and, uh, and your enemies. And uh, we hope that you join us again next week.